Once again, this morning, I apologize, there's not a study guide for you this morning. Um, I couldn't get any computer to work this weekend, not at home, not in my office. It just didn't work. So, uh, as a consequence of that, I, I have an outline, but I can't give it to you because I only have one copy. And uh, I encourage you this morning to take some notes. If you're just joining us uh, today for the first time, we have been in a study in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And what we've been doing uh, most of this year is looking at all the doctrines of the Bible, all the teachings of the Bible, that actually have their, their origin, their starting point, in these first three chapters of Genesis. And then a few weeks ago, we uh, turned a corner, and we're looking at these three chapters from a different perspective, and that is, how does... Uh, the Bible and science square off. How do those two fit together or not? And um, my whole purpose in this entire series has been, uh, first of all, to help us understand that God gave us these three chapters for a reason, that they are the starting point, uh, the, the beginning of all the rest of the teaching of Scripture, and that our faith is really... Uh, rooted in these three chapters. We cannot treat them lightly. And now, having said that, uh, we have to face the question in our contemporary world, how do these chapters square up in terms of what we're being told about science and what's happening in all of those fields? And I will uh, tell you this morning as we come to this particular study, We're going to be talking this morning about the age of the earth, more or less. And uh, as I have been working on this for two weeks now, and and even longer, um, my head is swimming. Wow. There is just a lot, a lot of information out there. And to try to kind of put it all together in a way that I can serve it to you this morning, uh, and you can eat it and digest it and benefit from it, uh, has been quite a challenge. I'm not sure that I'm going to accomplish that, but that's at least my aim as I try to distill for you kind of where everything lies with respect to the age of the earth and, and science and the Bible. And in saying that, um, here, here is the disparity between viewpoints. Evolutionary Dating methods, and when I speak of evolution, most of the time I think we think in terms of biological evolution, but the concept has been exported to all the fields, and we talk about the evolution of the universe and the evolution of the earth and and geology and uh, astrophysics and all those kinds of things kind of have an evolutionary model in mind. The evolutionary theory of the age of the earth is that this planet that we live on is about four and a half billion years old. And you stack that up against the also presumed age of the universe, which is more like 14 billion years old. And in the evolutionary uh, model, the earth has been around about a third as long as the universe has. And the origins of planet Earth and history go back four and a half billion years. Young Earth creationists, I'm going to define that more carefully for you in a, in a few moments. But young Earth creationists, who are biblical literalists, believe that the planet is somewhere between six and ten thousand years old. And let me tell you something, there is a huge difference between four and a half billion years and six to ten thousand years. I mean, there, there is a huge disparity between those two figures. And then as we kind of begin to, to look at that, I think one of the first questions that, that I want to answer is, what are the different viewpoints regarding the age of the earth, and how do... Christians stack up in that lineup, and what is kind of the evolutionary concept. So I want to share with you the multiple positions. And I warn you in advance, uh, you can get confused here unless you're making some notes, 
because I'm going to give you, describe different positions, and I, I want us to be able to keep them straight in our minds. The first idea about how the world became what it is and where it came from that I want to name is evolutionary uniformitarianism. You've heard me speak of that before. Uniformity means that the present is the key to the past. Uh, evolution means that what we have today came about through a process of gradual change that kind of moved upstream against the tide of the normal decay. It moved to order and, and symmetry and harmony and all those kinds of things. Evolutionary uniformitarianism as a perspective is essentially atheistic. Now, let me define what I mean by that, because I am not saying that every evolutionist is an atheist. I do not mean that. Many evolutionists are professing Christians and so forth. So, I'm not saying that every evolutionist is an atheist. What I'm saying is that as a perspective of looking at the history of Earth and the history of the universe, evolutionary uniformitarianism is atheistic without God in respect to the process of investigation. In other words, they say that natural phenomena have natural explanations. Or to put it another way, it is not fair to bring God into the laboratory. You cannot come up against a wall, a conundrum, a problem, and introduce God as the solution. That's not fair. If we're going to do science, science is about what we can see and experiment and test and observe we have to stay in the natural, physical realm. God has no place in the laboratory. And so we can only explain things, we can only explain phenomena, things that occur and events that happen, we can only explain that in terms of natural explanations. Because you can't test God, you can't put Him in a test tube, you can't observe uh, his behavior in a controlled environment. God, by the way, specifically resists that. And so, uh, you, can't, you can't bring him into the equation. This leaves evolutionists in a very awkward position because there are some things that just kind of defy explanation unless you have a God. But as a, as a discipline, evolutionary uniformitarianism is without God. And that is the perspective, that he cannot be introduced into the laboratory. There's another viewpoint out there that you've heard talked about, it's been in the news, and, and we've been hearing about it for, for a number of years, and that's called intelligent design. And quite honestly, intelligent design was a term coined uh, predominantly by Christians who wanted to reintroduce a different model or a different way of thinking about the origin of the earth, the origin of species, animals, and whatever, that was not evolutionary, but they wanted to make it acceptable within the school system, acceptable within the universities and whatever. And so they wanted to take the, the uh, emotion-laden religious terminology out of it. They didn't want to talk about God. They didn't want to talk about creation. They didn't want to talk about the Bible. They said, let's just talk about intelligent design. And let's approach this as if the universe did not just happen, but it actually had a designer. And part of the reason for that is because we see such incredible uh, complexity and, and incredible synergy and all those other kinds of things that kind of work together in our natural world that, you know, a thinking person that's just really looking at it objectively, kind of scratches her head and say, how did this just happen? I mean, how could this just be an accident? And so let's talk about a design. Let's talk about a plan. And people who hold to intelligent design, most of the time are Christians, but you don't have to be a Christian to be an intelligent design advocate. Um, you just have to have the concept that there is some kind of design 
Could be the force, could be God, could be some other designer. There's some kind of design behind what we see because it defies explanation otherwise. Well, in in large measure and in court cases where this has been tested, that whole concept kind of loses. And it loses because people see through it. They just say, aha, you're just looking for another way to sneak God into the classroom. And we're not buying it. Uh, We want to be purely naturalistic. God has no business in the laboratory. He has no business in the classroom. And so as a consequence of that, um, that is... Not that has not accomplished the purpose for which the, the whole concept was kind of designed. So I've told you about two different viewpoints now, right? I've told you about evolutionary uniformitarianism. I've told you about intelligent design. Now I want to talk about creationists, people who believe that God, the God of the Bible, is behind the whole thing. You would think that that would just simply be one category. But it isn't, because there are professing Christians all over the place in their viewpoints and perspectives of how this whole thing came to be and how old the earth is. Under the heading of creationist in general, there are theistic evolutionists. Basically, a theistic evolutionist is a person who completely buys the evolutionary process, hook, line, and sinker, but believes that God was behind it all. Not not an intelligent designer, but actually God, the God of the Bible, caused it all to happen. And so, the reason that evolution runs counter to what you would expect, things winding down and decaying, but things moving up and becoming more complex... The reason it works against the grain is because God is kind of the prime mover behind the whole process, but evolution is the way he did it. And and we can study evolution, and we can explore it, and we can believe it, and we can accept it as a scientific valid explanation, because God is the one who's behind it all. After you get past that group of people, and it's a fairly significant group, there is a group called Old Earth Creationist. Now, what we mean by Old Earth is, these individuals believe that the world is, in fact, planet Earth is, in fact, four and a half billion years old. Hence, they're Old Earth Creationist. Two stripes. Two different kinds. Okay? There are some who believe in the gap theory. Now, you remember me talking about that a few weeks ago between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. Verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the surface of the waters. Now, if you subscribe to the gap theory, what you believe is that the verb in verse 2 should actually be translated became. Not was, but became. It reads this way then. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. And the earth became formless and void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And then God started a new project. In other words, for the old earth creationist who subscribes to the gap theory, all of the dinosaurs, all of the ancient fossils, all of the coal and the diamonds and and all the old rocks and all that kind of stuff could be billions of years old. It happened in that first creative event. God created the heavens and the earth. It happened then. But something went wrong to the original creation, and it kind of exploded. It it, it became a, a wasteland. It became in turmoil. Most of those who hold this theory believe that's when Satan fell and messed everything up. 
And as a consequence, God steps back into the picture to fix it. And in Genesis 1-2, he begins the process of repair, which takes him six days to accomplish, and brings us into the present era and world in which we live now. And the creation of man occurs in that period. That allows them to have a very old earth, a very old fossil record, to explain the dinosaurs and all those other kind of things, and still believe in the literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 after verse, after verse 1. There is another group of old earth creationists, and this is relatively new. And when I say relatively new, the last 20 or 30 years. This group of old earth creationists don't subscribe to the gap theory. They do believe that the universe is 14 billion years old. The earth is four and a half billion years old. They do believe in the gradual evolution and appearance of a variety of species upon the planet. They believe in millions of years of history of development, primarily along the lines of the evolutionary model. They believe in the gradual transformation of the Earth's atmosphere and the crust and all those kinds of things that took billions of years to happen. And, what, and they also believe in the gospel message of salvation, exactly as it's presented in the Scriptures. They claim to believe in the Bible as being the absolute Word of God. And in natural revelation, which is scientific investigation, as also being the revelation of God, and they say there is no conflict between God in the Scripture and God in nature. And you've heard me say that. There's no conflict here. They're, they're all together. And when you come to the truth, when you come to the end of the road, all there is to discover is truth. And it'll be always consistent with the Bible. Here's the difference, and it's a key difference. These old earth creationists believe that when there is an apparent conflict between science and the Bible, and they accept predominantly an evolutionary model of things, that when there's a conflict... We need to go back to the drawing board because we got something wrong. Guess what we got wrong? Our understanding of the Bible. Science is a valid method of investigation. The data is what it is. If it says the world is four billion years old, we misunderstood the Bible. God told us the truth, but we didn't get it. We misunderstood it. So we need to reevaluate our interpretation. You've heard me speak of some of the individuals who have done this, and largely the prevalent thinking of this group of people is that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 was never intended by God to be understood literally. It was a Hebrew poem telling a story in poetic language. It was not meant to be understood literally. It was never intended by God to be taken uh, as a fact. But it was a story explaining our sin problem. And as a result, if we understand the poetic genre of these chapters and the metaphorical concepts that are embodied in this pictorial language, then we don't have to take them literally and we can still say the Bible's true. And we can still say that evolution is how it developed. And we can still introduce God into the equation and we don't have a conflict. They also say that the flood was not global or universal in scope, that the flood was local that it did not include all the animals and and every living thing. It only included the Middle Eastern 
geography that affected the early human race. And that when Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Through one man sin entered the world and death by sin, they say that in the Garden of Eden there was the tree of life. And as long as they had not sinned, Adam and Eve could eat of that tree and they would not die. They could have immortality. But everything else died. It, was, it, it had been around for millions and millions of years. And the animals died and, and the natural survival of the fittest was part of the animal kingdom. And that was just the way it was. But Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life. When they sinned, they lost access And so they died when they were expelled from the garden. And when Romans 12 says that death entered the world through sin, it only means human death. I heard a Dr. Hugh Ross lecture on this at Trinity some years ago when he said, I was there present when he said, death is a beautiful thing. It is a part of nature. It is designed as a part of the cycle of living and dying and returning to the earth and providing um, nutrition and fertilization for the recreation and the development of newer and better things. Death is something God hardwired into the system. It is beautiful. I wanted to ask him if he had ever yet lost a loved one close to him. Because there is nothing beautiful about death. I don't care if it's your spouse or the raccoon on the side of the road. There's nothing beautiful about death. It's all ugly. It's all nasty. It all stinks. It hurts. It's horrible. Death is a blight upon this world. And the scripture says it was introduced as a consequence of sin. But this group of creationists are trying to hold the Bible and hold science together in harmony and find no conflict. And yet, basically, when they come to the decision point, okay, did we get our science wrong or did we misunderstand the Bible? Their answer is, we misunderstood the Bible. We've got to reinterpret the Bible because our science is reliable. That's the decision point. And then finally, there are young earth creationists. Young earth meaning the earth isn't very old. It's young. It's only six to 10,000 years old. And the Bible is literally true. God did the whole thing in six 24-hour days. One week, He did the whole thing, the whole universe. All death and corruption now see... That Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all creation is groaning and yearning for the manifestation of the sons of God because things are not the way they're supposed to be. That that whole thing was introduced as a consequence of sin. Young earth creation shall believe that the flood was global. That it was universal in scope. The entire planet. And that it was not just simply the water level rising. But there was another kind of catastrophe going on in that the fountains of the deep were being broken up and the whole earth was being shaken in a violent way that totally altered its structure and totally altered the environment of the planet. And so the the long life periods before the flood, people living uh, five and six and seven, eight and nine hundred years were real years. And and exposure to harmful things that the life span declined rapidly to about the average today seventy or eighty years, and that that was as, as a consequence of this catastrophe within the planet. Now, of all the things that I've shared with you, there are only two of these positions that accept the Bible at face value as being literally true. The gap theory, old earth creationist. They accept the Bible as being literally true. And they put all of the other stuff in that man's sustain away geologist who says, yes, but this rock is two billion years old. 
okay. That's, they literally believe the rest of the scripture is exactly true. I think it is very interesting, and I pointed this out to you when we were talking about it before, I think it's very interesting that no one thought to interpret the verb, the earth was without form and void. No one thought to interpret that verb became until after Darwin. In 1,800 years of church history before Darwin, no one thought Genesis 1-2 was a gap. It's a case of being confronted with something we cannot explain with the information we had at the time and trying to scramble to find a way to, to interpret the Bible and translate it in a way that doesn't leave us embarrassed. And so we go looking, and sure enough, we find that that Hebrew verb form could be translated became. And so we introduce that as a translation, and our exegesis changes. I'm not wanting to be too hard on this group. I I have many friends who are old earth, gap theory creationists. But I think we have to be honest when we say that this idea did not cross anyone's mind until after Darwin introduced the origin of the species and the whole evolutionary model began to take root. That's when people started looking for a different way to look at Genesis. The only other group that takes the Bible as being literally true is the young earth creationist. And frankly, uh, those of us in that category do not get uh, much acceptance or credibility uh, out there at large, even among the Christian community. There is a growing, growing belief in the Christian community in this country to buy into the, the creationist perspective that Hugh Ross and company believe that, that the ancient earth and evolution and all of that is kind of the way God did it, but um, the gospel is still literally true. Now, friends, when we come to this, and I tell you that of all the choices, there are only two choices that take the Bible as being literally true. Do you understand from our studies so far what the problem is? Because I think it's very important that as as believers, we understand the actual issue. If God was not able to protect the writers of Scripture from introducing myth and error into the history and record of things that we can investigate. In other words, if there really are mistakes in the Bible, then we cannot believe that he could prevent them from introducing error and myth into the spiritual message that we cannot investigate. I mentioned this before, but this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. If I tell you of earthly things and you do not believe me, how are you going to believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? And the problem is, if the Bible is not reliable in the realm that we can investigate, how can we possibly put any stock in it when it speaks to us of eternal truths that we cannot investigate? And if we are the ones who make the decision as to when the Bible is accurate and when it is in error, Do you understand that your entire faith collapses and that you're left standing on the resources of your own brain to figure out the matters of eternity? I had a person not long ago say to me with with a great deal of agitation, I am pluralistic and open-minded. I accept people whatever they believe. But it really makes me angry when somebody says to me, I'm going to go to hell if I don't believe what you believe. And I thought, well, 
I guess I can understand your feelings. But what if it's true? What if it's true? The question is not, what is your opinion versus what is my opinion? We all have opinions. And who's to say whose opinion is right? No one can answer that question, really, about eternity. We have no way of knowing. We do need to be tolerant of one another. We need to be gracious and kind. But if the Bible is true when it says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and unless we repent of our sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ and trust Him, we will be eternally separated from God in a place called hell. What if that is true? Then it does not matter what we think. Because the reality is that's what's going to happen. And I don't have anything to say about that and neither do you. But if the Bible cannot be trusted in all of its points, then frankly we cannot trust it in any of its points. And I submit to you this morning that our faith really does rise or fall at this point. It's either all true... Or it's completely unreliable. And we have no way to sort out the difference left purely to rationalism. So let me move into section two. I actually finished this this morning in 15 minutes. I'll see if I can do it again uh, here today. Let me move into section two. And here's the question. I've told you about all the different ideas that that come together here. So the next question I want to ask is, is there an interpretation of the data that will support young earth creationism. Now, let me define data for you. Data is what is there. It's the rock. It's the fossil. It's the life form under the microscope. Data is what exists, what we can see. That's the data. It's all over the place. It's physics, it's math, it's geology, it's biology. That's what's out there. Now, is there a way to look at that data that it actually supports young earth creationism? Or do we really have to stick our heads in the sand and say, well, there's no evidence for the Bible, but I believe it anyway. All the evidence is contrary, but I don't care. I just believe the Bible no matter what. Is that that what we're left to? And I want to suggest to you, but by the time I'm done, I hope you agree, that that's not what we're left to. That when we look at the data from a position of believing faith, we find that there is plenty of data to support young earth creationism. There's plenty of data. And yes, there's question marks, and yes, there are gaps in it. But there's gaps for everybody in every position. And here's the kicker. How you interpret the data depends on where you begin. What your assumptions and presuppositions are going into the question. Do you understand what I mean by that? How you view life and your worldview when you go into the laboratory determines how you interpret the outcome of the data. You have to have a starting point to do research. And in this case, your starting point is based on some assumptions that no one can prove in anybody's game. Because pure science is looking at what you can see, what you can observe, what you can measure, what you can validate, what you can record... And no one was there to see the earth made. No one could record that data. We have what we have today, but no one was around to say how it started. We must infer it based on assumptions that have no basis in fact. 
I told you this a week ago, a couple of weeks ago. Everyone starts from a position of faith. What do you believe? So, when a scientist finishes all their training, they've got their master's degree or they've got their PhD or whatever, and they get their job and they go into the laboratory, okay? And they go into work, real work, for the first day. They're, gonna, they're now a scientist. Okay, no one goes into the lab and sits down at the bench and waits for something to happen. I don't have any ideas. I have a totally blank mind. I have no preconceptions. I have no assumptions. I'm just going to wait for the first phenomena that occurs in my lab. And then I'm going to try to figure out what it means. Okay, no one does that. Everyone goes at it by saying, I have an idea. I'm going to see if it's true. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to test this thing. I'm going to take all of my training and I'm going to submit my idea to the equipment and the, and the things that I can control. And I'm going to see if my idea is valid. Everybody starts with an idea. Everybody comes to the table with an idea. This is one of the problems that disturbs me in the argument is that when you get out there and you're talking with people, as soon as you introduce the Bible, people say, oh, I see you're not very scientific. Oh, I see that, that, that you're just going to rely on that religion crux and we can't have a conversation anymore because clearly you don't have a scientific mind. Well, what idea did you start with? I started with the idea that God created it. I can test that. I can go into the lab and I can subject that idea to testing. I can look at the data. Does it fit? What idea did you start with? Well, I started with no God. It it, it all happened by chance. And, And on what do you base that? Nothing. Literally nothing. It's based on faith. And, and, and there actually is an agenda. I have to give Richard Dawkins credit when he says that the debate between evolution and the origin of life is always religious. Richard Dawkins is upfront about it. He says it's always religious. Your worldview determines how you view this entire thing. And your worldview is always religious, and there is no God, and that's a religious decision. Dawkins is honest. He's wrong, and and it's sad. You watch his face, and I I feel sorry for him. But he at least recognizes that we're talking about faith matters here. And for him, he does not want any God in his life or any God in the universe And he's going to spend his life proving there is no God. And that's his committed purpose. Now, not every scientist is like that, but he happens to be one of them. So no one starts out without any ideas. There are no blank slates. Everyone starts with an idea. And I will tell you that part of the difficulty is that when whatever idea you start with, the data reads differently to you. So, we can sit in the room this morning and we can invite a pure atheistic evolutionary geologist to talk to us about the age of the earth and we could uh, invite Hugh Ross and company in as Christian old earth theorists and, and we could have them talk to us about the age of the earth and we could invite a real scientist in who is a young earth creationist And they could all talk about the same thing and all take away something that supports their idea from it because that's how they're approaching it. Does that bother you? It shouldn't. But I just want you to understand that where you start does in fact prejudice how you interpret what you find. And that starting point is very, very important. As a young earth creationist, I start with the idea that the Bible is literally true that I have to take it at face value, and that there was a universal flood, 
and a, and a geologic catastrophe that significantly altered and changed the planet. Now, is there any data that supports that? If I start from that premise, is there anything that supports that? Well, there's a lot of interesting things. For example, the fossil record. If you look at the fossil record, if you look at a science textbook, and you, and you look at the fossil evidence, you will always find this neat little diagram that shows the layers of sediment and the development of life and how the fossil record kind of unfolded over time. And you find at the very bottom these, these trilobite, horseshoe crab-looking things, and you find at the top, you know, uh, eventually you maybe go into the next page and you see how man kind of came from other kind of ape-like creatures, started out kind of like this, and that was just kind of like me in the morning with arthritis. <laughs> and then gradually, if I die in that position, I'm going to become the missing link. <clears throat> but how they gradually stood up, you know, and, and you look at that whole neat picture and it's all laid out for you. Here's the problem. That nice, neat picture does not exist anywhere on the surface of the earth. The, the layers are all topsy-turvy. There is not consistency in what fossils are found in which layer. The whole thing is mixed up. And what you see in the science textbook is purely conjecture based upon the idea that life forms evolved and therefore the simplest forms have to be in the oldest layers. But there's no evidence where the oldest layers are. And so when you look at the fossil record to begin with, you find that when you actually get out there in the world and begin to examine the planet, what looks good in the textbook does not fit the real world experience. And what often happens is that people borrow from various disciplines. A biologist tries to figure out how to date this new fossil he found. And he asks the geologist, okay, I found it in this strata. How old is the rock? And the geologist gives him an answer. But then the geologist finds a, a, a new rock strata, and he doesn't know how to date that, so he asks the biologist, what fossils do you find in it? They, they work off of each other, kind of supporting the concept, but no one gets down to answer the original question. How old is this thing really? Then you have the fact that fossils are often intermixed where they shouldn't be. You find them occurring in the same strata out of order. And you have to ask the question, how did a human footprint and a dinosaur footprint end up in the same riverbed? at the same time, if they're millions of years apart. And no one has a good answer for that. Also, when you look at fossils, you find some interesting things. You find seashells on the tops of mountains. And you find boulders and gravel that has been deposited there from what was obviously rushing water type conditions... And you have to ask yourself, how did they end up on top of the Mogollon mountain range in Arizona? How did they get there on top? If it's the consequence of the tumbling and churning of flood water. And yes, those mountains may not have been that high when that was occurring, but one of the interesting things is some, some geologists began to examine that and they were looking at those boulders, and they asked a lot of interesting questions like, how did this hard rock get so round? And how come it has impacts in it where something hit it? What kind of force would it take? It's called a percussion mark. What kind of force would it take to put that dent in that rock or to, to make that kind of, of an impact? And they start doing the math and the calculations, and one uh, report that I read suggested that it would take a surge of rushing water uh, traveling about 60 miles an hour or better in a certain volume to carry rocks that heavy and that uh, to tumble them like that and to cause those kinds of percussion marks. And when you look at what we know about the present 
not even the tsunamis can produce that kind of thing. There's something going on here that simply doesn't fit the present day. There is a suggestion in the fossil record that the whole planet at one time was underwater. And if you come at it from a biblical perspective, that's the way it looks to you. If you come at it from an evolutionary perspective, and you look at it and you say, well, it's obvious that that dirt once was very low, and now it's been pushed up very high, and when it was low, that's where the rocks got on it, and now it's been kind of pushed up. And that's how that happened, but it took millions and millions of years for that to occur. They're looking at the same data and drawing different conclusions. It is interesting to me, and I've suggested to you the continental drift concept before, but it's interesting to me that if you look at the deep um, channels in the oceans, I'm drawing a blank, but they're like canyons down in the bottom of the ocean, if you look at the relief map of the world where it's flattened out, and you look at the deep channels of the oceans, it honestly looks like all the land was once together, and then it's been just kind of pulled apart, and these deep channels have formed that almost look like the stitching marks where it kind of came unglued. When you look at Genesis, the Bible says God separated the land from the water and caused the dry land to appear. The concept is almost that it kind of rose out of the water. And then in Genesis 6 and 7, when you read about the flood, it says the fountains of the deep were broken up. And the water rose upon the surface of the earth as well as the rain. And I'm not convinced at all that the earth was flooded simply by the rain, but by the fact that the subterranean fountains were broken up. And if you look at the landmass and imagine it being put back together, you can almost see how it just, uh, perhaps from the bottom, God just caused the whole thing to be destroyed from the inside out. If you could level the ocean floors and the mountains to where the crust of the earth had the same level all over the planet, did you know that the world today, as it exists, would be covered by 9,000 feet of water? And as I read the Genesis flood, that's what it sounds like to me. That God flooded the earth, destroyed the planet, and then, who knows how long after the ark landed, the cataclysmic changes continued to occur as land masses rose up and mountains were thrust up and ocean floors dropped and the waters receded. Who knows how long that went on as the planet was reshaped. One of the big issues in the question of age that always comes up is carbon-14. And carbon-14 is an interesting thing. Um, I'm not sure that I understand it. There's people here this morning that could explain it much better than I could, although I don't know if any of us can do it in two or three minutes. But um, carbon-14 is kind of an unnatural form of the carbon atom. It's been affected probably by solar radiation in the atmosphere, and it's, and it's different from a normal carbon atom. And so the re relationship of carbon-14 to carbon-12 is one to a trillion. There's one carbon-14 atom for every trillion normal carbon atoms. That's what's in the atmosphere today. And every living Thing, by virtue of being in existence on the planet, has the same amount of carbon-14 in them that exist in the atmosphere. So that at the time they die, they die with however much carbon-14 was in the atmosphere. Everybody's heard about carbon-14 dating. And what happens is this is kind of an unstable atom and it decays, it, it, it changes over time. In fact, it migrates into nitrogen. And if I can explain it as simply as I know how, if you could take a jar filled with carbon-14 atoms, it has what's called a half-life. That means how long does it take 
for half of it to remain carbon-14 and half of it to be nitrogen. And that half-life for carbon-14 is 5,730 years. So, are you starting to see the equation? You're all with me, right? Got a jar full of carbon-14. If you wait, you close the lid tight, you wait for 5,730 years. Now you've got half a jar of carbon-14 and half a jar of nitrogen. And if that were in a living thing that died and you measured in the remains one carbon-14 atom for every two trillion normal carbon atoms, you would know that it died 5,730 years ago. If you wait another 5,730 years with your jar, you'll have one quarter jar of carbon-14 and three quarter jar of nitrogen. So this tells you a couple of things. It tells you that eventually you're going to run out of carbon-14, right? Because if every 5,730 years you keep cutting it in half, eventually you're not going to have any left. You're going to have only nitrogen left in your jar. This is exactly what happens in carbon-14 dating. It only is accurate so far back because beyond a certain limit, there's none of it left. Even though used to, the dating methods were only accurate according to the present atmosphere. They were only accurate to about 50,000 years. With more sophisticated equipment, we can now measure the residual amount of carbon-14 back to about 80,000 years with, with validity. Beyond that, beyond 100,000 years, carbon-14 should not exist in anything. Now, if the present is the key to the past, the evolutionary concept, we take the amount in the atmosphere today and we work backwards and we say, how long did it take something to exhaust the content? And we assign a date to it. And as we go back in time, we can say, okay, this is 20,000 years old, this is 30,000 years old, or whatever. The first assumption is that the atmosphere at the time of the critter's death was the same as it is today. What if... What if it were a perfect world with no exposure to solar radiation, for example, and there was virtually no carbon-14 in the atmosphere when the animal died? Do you follow that? The animal dies with almost no carbon-14 to begin with. To us, it looks like it's 40,000 years old. Because we're assuming it had as much as we would have. But it didn't. It had much less. In other words, it's much younger than what the dating method ascribes. The other side of the coin is this. Remember I said after about 100,000 years there should be none of it left? Guess what they found carbon-14 in? Coal and diamonds. Rocks that are supposed to be billions, millions of years old. Well, how did that happen? The first time this was discovered, the assumption was that the samples had been contaminated. It has now been tested several more times, and yes, carbon-14 exists in diamonds and coal. How do you solve that problem? Well, if you're an evolutionary geologist, you say, huh, I don't know. If you're a young earth creationist, you say, well, obviously the coal isn't millions of years old. Obviously it's only a few thousand years old. It depends on your starting point. In conclusion, I want to read you a couple of paragraphs from Davis A. Young. Davis Young is Professor Emeritus of Geology at Calvin College. 
He is a graduate of Princeton with his bachelor's degree, Penn State with his master's, and Brown College with his Ph.D. He is published with InterVarsity Press and considered a conservative evangelical Christian. Here's what he says, and I, and I was reading this last night, and I thought, well, this really is the landing point. Here's his summary to a 47-page article. To this day, flood catastrophism continues alive and well. Articles on the flood appear regularly in Creation Research Society Quarterly, for example. For the most part, the proposals lack empirical control and fail to engage or test the hypotheses of other flood geologists. Flood geology has proved to be a marvelous illustration of the unlimited human capacity both to offer and embrace unchecked speculation. He is not a young earth creationist, by the way. In fact, he doesn't believe in a universal flood, doesn't believe Genesis 1-3 to is true, but he is a conservative evangelical Christian by his own definition. Now he says this, One might expect that those who endorse a strict literalistic interpretation of the flood narrative involving the complete destruction of human and animal life not preserved on the ark and the significant reordering of the earth's surfaces would be inclined simply to reject the relevance of extra-biblical data. Given the fact that such data seem clearly and overwhelmingly to deny that such a planet-altering flood ever took place. One might expect that such individuals would instead make appeals solely to the Word of God as the complete and final authority in all such matters, and they would denounce extra-biblical evidence as superfluous and misleading. And yet the proponents of flood geology have moved in the opposite direction, not only showing a substantial interest in extra-biblical evidence, but actually elevating it to the status of apologetic proof. He's complaining that people who believe the Bible are out there looking for evidence that supports it. When the whole world of evolutionists are constantly out there looking for evidence that supports their theory. But I agree with him. In some ways, it really boils down to my by faith acceptance of the Scripture as the Word of God. And when I come to that fork in the road, science or the Bible, and there's a conflict, my answer is, science got it wrong. I'm just going to have to wait, because the Bible is true, no matter what the evidence seems to say today. Because in due season, it will resolve itself if it has to wait for the final judgment. The issue for flood geologists is not whether extra-biblical evidence is relevant to biblical interpretation, but rather how to interpret the evidence. And that's where he draws his article to a conclusion. And I think he's right. And our decision is, and I hope the thing that I've left you with this morning, no one can conclusively prove their case in the scientific realm. Everyone who approaches a theory of origins must do so making certain assumptions by faith before they ever walk into their laboratory. And at the end of the day, I want to rest on the Word of God. Because if I cannot trust the Bible, then I can't trust anything about anything. And I'm left to my own devices. And at the final analysis, it is the Holy Spirit who confirms in my heart that His Word is true. And I do not need to be afraid that someone out there someday is going to discover something that absolutely disproves the Scripture. Because I'm confident that will never happen. Father, thank You. For your word to us this morning, and I pray that we would be encouraged 
by your word and believe your report. There are many things we do not understand about our world. There are many unanswered questions in the realm of scientific investigation. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, O oh God, by faith, we choose to fear you. We rest upon your truth. We believe its promises. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. Amen. Amen.